Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Paloma Media's podcast. We're here with another little episode of um, Hot Chicks, Cold Takes with Liz Wolf. Good, hey, hey, Nancy. How are you doing? Good morning. It's glad I'm glad to see you back in the studio. So, Liz, besides the conversation we were just having in the living room about cookware, which is always <laughs> extremely important, um, we've been talking a little bit about something else this week, something that you've sort of been experiencing online a little? Yeah, I mean, I've experienced this uh, a good amount over my entire journalism career, right? Because people will just fixate on things and, and sort of go crazy on Twitter. But one thing I've been bothered by lately is basically people on, you know, there was this whole sort of cancel culture discourse that was started, this round was started by that sort of milquetoast kind of boring New York Times editorial, um, which, you know, it's great that they're late to the party. Like, it's great that they came to the party at all, I guess. Um, it wasn't particularly interesting, but it did set off sort of waves of like typical commentators talking about this once again. And, you know, I participated in some of that. But one of the things that really began to bother me was people alleging that I believe things that I didn't based off of that thread where I was talking about heretical or semi-heretical opinions, where in a lot of elite institutions, you can't utter them for fear of right. being called all kinds of names. These people on Twitter very much proved my point by then doing precisely that. But one of the ways of reacting to this, because I'm not particularly emotionally wrapped up in it so much as I am kind of amused by their the ease with which they can just spread lies. And so I've just been quote tweeting these and saying, this is not true. Or like, show me where I said this. And and there's never a response. A lot of the times they'll block me, which is odd because my followers don't do anything untoward to them. You know, I'm pretty clear about like, please don't do that. Mm -hmm. I don't want you to, to be finding out who this person is and telling their employer. That's not how we operate here. So, so you will say, hey, I didn't say that. And instead of coming back, I did see one interesting one yesterday. They were claiming you said something. And you're like, I I never said that. Like, where are you seeing that? And they came back with something like, well, here it is. And it was so not having anything to do with the original thing. I'm like, like, what? Like, yeah, what? like try again. Like, try again. But anyway, why would, why do you think they would block you as opposed to just saying, okay, I'm just going to end this argument now? Well, I think it's, it's threatening and disarming to have somebody sort of call this the farce that it is. And one thing that I've been really focused on doing lately <clears throat> is just a sense of like, I think a lot of this is about them exercising power. I think a lot of it is very uncritical. And I think a lot of the times when people are faced with, I mean, I had one thread where I had a hundred replies to the first tweet and a hundred replies to the second one. And it's all just crazy stuff. So stuff calling me an evil fascist, a transphobe, all these different things. And I think a lot of people react to that because they're not used to it. They react to it with a sense of like, Ooh, I should delete those tweets or I should contemplate whether I said something wrong or 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 they sort of buckle or they they retreat. And I don't really care. I mean, this was on a Friday, so I just logged off and I had I had plans with friends like a normal person. But then on Monday, I sort of looked back at this and I I reread the tw the the tweet thread and I'm like, "Well, I actually didn't get anything wrong. Like all of this is reflective of what I believe and all of it is stuff that I would be absolutely happy to discuss with people I know personally or strangers with people in my industry." all of these things I'd be happy to read books out. Like, like all of these are worthwhile and reasonable and it's not like I was flying off the handle at all. I don't regret, like, I just don't regret any of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, we've all seen people that, I mean, I delete boring tweets, but oh, I would yeah. never, I would never go on there and state, 
either an opinion or anything like that and then delete it, I would certainly come back and say, oh, I didn't think of it the way that you're, you know, if someone's coming to me in good faith and, and saying, you know, I kind of disagree with this. Have you thought of it this way? That's a fascinating discussion. Um, yeah. But the idea of like deleting something because people are piling on is a very strange sort of phenomenon. Like, what are you doing here in the first place? Well, it's it's just like classic intimidation tactics. And unfortunately for them, I'm not intimidated because they're a lot of the times kind of losers and not people like the the criticism isn't valid. And so basically I'm trying to suss out, okay, you're alleging that I am all these things that feels somewhat untethered and disconnected from the actual thing that instigated your reaction, which was the words that I wrote. Like there's a disconnect here. Tell me about that. And they just can't. And to me, that shows the flimsiness of their sort of beliefs. So we were talking, uh, I was talking to you last night about how when I was a kid, like eight, nine, 10 years old, the only thing I hated more than someone patting me on the head <laughs> was someone telling me I'd said something that I knew I did not say. Um, when you're young, you don't really understand. You think, oh, maybe there was a misunderstanding. Then you get a little older and you realize people are saying these things for their own fears or anger or power. I remember once when um, my daughter was a little like, anyone that knows me knows that I feed everyone. I mean, that's just the way it is. And this one mom, we had toddlers and her kid would come to my house and uh, she's like, you know, she came home and she said, you didn't feed her anything. And I was like, <laughs> well, you got to try again because that's just never, ever going to happen. Maybe she was mad at me for another reason. Um, I wonder like why... Are people coming to you when you have said, let's just take the issue of transphobia? They seem to be on some bent with you because you wrote what I felt was an extremely reasonable thread <laughs> about certain things you believed and, and didn't believe. And um, there was nothing transphobic in there that I saw, but maybe I see through different lenses. Why do you think they have, where is it getting them to accuse you of this particular thing that you actually don't represent or believe at all. Well, I've been thinking about this a lot and I'm slightly afraid to <clears throat> to distill it into just this. But one thing that I think they want, because my actual beliefs, like I think both of us are probably people who believe by and large, and we were talking about this a lot last night at dinner, that there's a specific set of biological markers and experiences, hormones, genitals, all these different things that accompany being a man or being a woman. Um, we can talk about chromosomes. We can talk about hormones. But there's also, I think, I think you and I both believe very fervently in this idea that, like, sometimes legitimately people um, do have this very, like, deeply held feeling that they were born in the wrong body. And when they're adults, they can go through that process of inquiry and careful consideration and make sure that their their head is screwed on straight, but that this is a legitimate thing that they've been mulling for years and years. And they can decide to pay money to to transition and to to get the surgeries and the, the hormone therapy that they need in order to do that. And that's something that like in a free society, I want people to be able to do that. I don't relate to that experience. I've never dealt with that. Um, but I am really, really worried about this becoming uh, like an over stated overhyped phenomenon where tons and tons of people think that there's something that they're perhaps not and aren't going through that process of careful consideration. I'm worried about this being a thing that children do or something that parents, especially in really progressive places, really egg on. 
<coughs> which I Sorry, think is so probably, <laughs> which I think is probably, you know, we hear about those stories. They're probably a lot rarer, but they're, but sure. it, you know, they, people get, you know, it's the thing they cite and you become incredibly alarmed by, and sometimes they are alarming, but yes, I, I it's I'm hard to you. figure out. It's hard to figure out the scale on which this is happening. And that's a really important piece of the puzzle because we obviously see a lot of the right wing media overhyping that. Sure. And then we also see a lot of, I think, left skewing media sort of downplaying that this is something that should be in any way concerning at all. People like Katie Herzog, I think, and Jesse Single do a really good job of, of towing this line. Yeah. And so they're sort of, I think, people who, um, the things that they write on this matter and the things that they say are pretty representative of how I look at it. Uh, I think they're approaching it from a place of prudence and empathy. And I think it's not crazy to marry those two, um, those two virtues, those two traits. And I think that's how I look at it. Uh, but I think what they want from me, I think what these people online want is not for me to have that measured sort of carefully uh, come to conclusion that is informed by knowing trans people and loving them uh, and that is informed by a lot of reading and a lot of actual like research into this. The What they want is for me to be like a blonde Fox News hussy who just like doesn't know any trans people and is legitimately afraid of them and is weirded out by them and isn't cosmopolitan at all and doesn't like living in Manhattan or Brooklyn. Like, I mean, for crying out loud, I live in like dumb hipster Brooklyn, right? Like everybody on my block is either like black or non-binary, like a non-binary white artist, right? Like that's, those are the two types on my block. Um, and I like it. It's cool. It's fun. I chat with people all the time and they want me to be, they want me to be dumb, blonde, hussy, like Fox News person. And I'm not, and that pisses them off. And so they don't know what to do with that because I'm not, I, I have the markers of like being on their side. Like I'm a, a, a tattooed lady who lives in New York, who constantly does Szechuan cooking. Like I'm not afraid of other ways of living and other cultures and other, both you and I, I think really have this like deep appreciation for cosmopolitanism and for a lot of these sort of like multiculturalism and, and all the different types of people that we run into on a daily basis. This is something that I treasure. They, I think, want me to not be that because then it's easier for them. They want to caricature. Yeah. You have to have, you, you've got to be able to recognize your enemies, right? It's like, yeah. what shirt are you wearing? What team are you on? Are you blue or are you, are you red? And so it makes it easier. I, I still- You encounter this a lot too, because people don't know what to do with, with Nancy Rommelman. They don't know- What? <laughs> <laughs> I think I mean you encountered this a lot with with the your your cancellation and the me neither stuff of like they are like you're not an anti-feminist well, like there is nothing about you that is in any way anti-feminist but that was sort of the thing that they wanted to place upon you well yeah because then it was easy to say why are we not going to like this person well we're not going to like this person because she well their particular, you know, in air quotes conclusion was that I was, my views were unsafe and made them by extension unsafe, which, you know, it, this is all nonsensical. Yeah. Um, but the people that actually, you know, went with it, mostly people that have never met me or knew anything about me or read or listened to anything I ever did, um, they could identify it. It was like super fast and identifiable. And it was something I was telling you last night. Um, of course, people are going to say all kinds of crazy things. They've never seen your show or your work and they're going to come back at you. But I remember reading a quote in the newspaper when this was all happening in Portland from a, an employee, an employee that I think I'd met once who told the newspaper and was quoted as saying that I, I told her she needed to do X. I don't even remember what X was, but it was some sort of like arm exercise that I'd actually never heard of. And I was like, <laughs> so the newspaper prints that and I now look like I'm somehow anti-woman or something. Um, but this actually ties back to something we were just talking about in the living room, which is 
Why does it perhaps, okay, it bugs me if someone tells me I didn't feed their kid. It bugs me if someone says, I told you to do an arm exercise that I've never even heard of. And I know that you're doing it because you want to spread the word that I'm a bad person. I think this is pretty freaking lame. If you want to come at me, come at me. Come talk to me. Let's tell me what you really think I did. And I will sit and talk to you. It's always, the door's always been open for this. But I think one of the reasons it really bugs you and I when people are saying things that we didn't say, it's not only because it bugs us, but because we work in a business where we have to get our facts right. Like, oh, yeah. I, I mean, you told me last- There's week, like a high evidentiary standard, you, almost the way that lawyers look at you, it. That's how we look at it. I remember reading a book, what was it? The Tender Bar, J.R. Moringer, uh, many years ago. And I think it's changed now, but I think I'm, I'm kind of botching this story and I'm sorry if I am. <laughs> but um, he, I think, was at the New York Times at the time. And he got the name of, it was like some big crime and he was there and he got the name of, I think, a family member of, of the crime victim and he got it wrong and he got canned. Okay. It's like people actually, I really think that the general public, you know, the 50,000 people that come at you or the 50,000 people that come at me accusing us of something, they don't understand. We walk in a world where we have to get things right. And if we get them wrong, we are, we have to admit it. It goes into print that, hi, you know, Nancy Rommelman said this happened in Schenectady. It was actually Rochester. Okay. Like, so when we actually base our credentials and our reputations on getting things right to have to like constantly be like batting away the gnats of nonsensical accusations it's you, just frustrating do you want to know a, a thing that reason does that i think i'm allowed to disclose we'll see if i am i guess i'll find <laughs> out what i um but on our performance reviews you are supposed to list any major corrections that you've uh, had to issue over the course of the year and i don't think this is done from a place of trying to publicly shame people so no. much as a little bit of a self-reflection of like, are you getting things consistently wrong? You take that very seriously. And, and it's a little, I mean, there there is something I think embarrassing about if you've had major thesis altering corrections that you've had to issue over the course of the year, you know, admitting that to your boss and having that be stacked up along with all of the things that you did right. That's good. That helps, that helps uh, higher ups more robustly evaluate, you know, what are you doing correctly? Because we have to take that really seriously. But I think people don't understand like that. And that isn't something that all newsrooms do. That's not something all magazines do. I've worked at other places where that's not the standard that's upheld, but I really appreciate that. Well, there's something much even worse than getting something wrong. Like if I, if I say, you know, Liz Wolf walked in at, at 8.55 and it turns out it was 9.10. I mean, okay, that's bad. I should get that right. But there's something much, much worse, which is I what I'm actually going to accuse, like what we call it in the news business, I've said it a million times, is you trim the facts to fit the theory, right? Oh, yeah. I have a theory that Liz Wolf is a blonde bimbet fox bot, right? So I am now going to, if I even bother, I don't think the people that are coming at you or coming at me even bother to go to any checking. They just, you know, have this idea that they're going to be on the right side. Um, but I if, wish I were a pretty I mean, fox bimbo. That would be kind of cool <laughs> hey, sometimes. <laughs> um, but um, I mean, you know, the phrase cherry picking. It's like if I write a story for you, Liz, and you're going to, I mean, we're both been in this business long enough to be able to smell when something is wrong. It's like, wait a second. Are you are you picking these facts in order to support your theory? This is this is I mean, plenty of places in journalism do that these days. Reason yeah. does not. I do not. You do not. That's not the way I do not. I, I first of all, I would go I, I wrote this the other day. I will literally go work as a baker 
before I do that and try to like you skew. say that like that's a punishment or a no bad it's thing. not I, I used to make my living as a baker but um I you know I, I feel like it is my responsibility to tell the story as best I can if I get it wrong I will and of course I'm a human I have <laughs> views but I'm going to try to bring that to you I think it would keep you up at night if you'd misrepresented I, your sources I I literally could Oh my God, you yeah. can't, you would, it would be such an incredible betrayal. And yeah. I think betrayal is an interesting word. Okay. So another thing we were talking about earlier in yeah. slightly different context. If uh, I got something the other day, so I've been writing from Ukraine. Okay. I was there and I was something on Twitter. It was linked. Some, I was like following a little rabbit hole of someone that had linked my work and or it was on Reddit. I don't know, but Someone said it was a Portland contingent where I'm not the most popular person in the world. And um, someone said, yeah, I know that some of you have had problems with, you know, Nancy Rollman in the past, but you should really read her stuff from Ukraine. You know, this is really interesting. And someone was like, "Ugh, who would trust her? And I was like, well, what? Like, first <laughs> of all, you, you don't know me. Second of all, you don't even know what the story is. But why would you have that sort of concrete in your heart to not even be interested at all. Well, and the irony of it is that they did used to trust you back when you were writing to the bridge and sort of excavating the pieces of a very prominent like crime that happened in Portland. And you got accolades for how it, accurately you reported that story. And so, so in a sense, there's a little bit of like, this isn't actually tethered to a sense of your credibility as a journalist or your honesty in your reporting. This is tethered more specifically to a political grievance that they have against you. Yeah. And separating uh, the two is important. Like that's really important because our business is a mixture of like, there are political opinions that, that we can sometimes attach to our work, but there's also the, can you report accurately and can you convey what your sources are saying? And can you fact check your own work well? And like, those are the two pieces to it. And it's weird that they would, I mean, they're, they're bullshitting, right? It's not that they actually distrust your reporting ability. It's that they dislike things that you believe about the Me Too movement. They, they like not liking me. It makes yeah. them happy. It's fun. To not like them. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> I give everybody so much pleasure. It's also a collective <laughs> effervescence, like unifying yes. activity yes. where it's Absolutely. like, it's something that brings them together to unite against this common enemy. And that's intoxicating for people, but it's a really shitty way of becoming intoxicated. Why be drunk well, on that? There's just so many better ways, better things to get drunk on. Um, another <laughs> article that we should mention that was in uh, The Atlantic last week, um, by Sarah Hepla, which was where she wrote about, um, you know, things we're not supposedly allowed to write about. Yeah. And because because you're going to get exactly the kind of reactions you're getting. And then when she realized, like, no, of course. And, and she always knew this. Um, these are exactly the things you want to write about. Am I going to write about them? Well, hopefully. Am I going to bring people some delight or sorrow or information like you just try are you going to get it right maybe not but you're definitely not doing what the people liz wolf are accusing you of doing yeah. and which is not bringing anybody any delight and also i don't think that those people that are like come on your twitter feed and they're complaining and then go off and block you <laughs> what power did they really get yeah well i i think they they become bored and sort of move on relatively quickly because they realize that with me, they can't win. Right. Like yeah, that's I'm right. not, well, I mean, it's also like, I, it's tough because in a sense it undermines the point, right? Basically me saying you guys can be 
doing all this type of mob behavior, but I'm protected. I'm not going to get fired. You can snitch tag my boss, my employer, all you want. That's not like, that's not what recent fires people over. That's a crazy premise. Um, <laughs> that's just, it would violate such deeply held principles. That's just not how we operate. Um, but but that's tough because then like my entire point is no, for lots of people in lots of industries or at lots of institutions, even other journalists, talking about some of these things publicly is something that will actually lead to heightened scrutiny. It is something that will lead to Donald, you've lost the newsroom type comments. Um, a direct comment from, I guess, Dean McKay yeah. to Donald McNeil, which we will not relitigate that. Um, but like legitimately, like, uh, although I am impervious and you are Im to some degree impervious now, impervious. <laughs> there's, a, there's a sense of like, well, a lot of people in a, at a lot of newsrooms and in a lot of other industries are absolutely not. And, you know, you look at the case of somebody like Emma Sarley, uh, who was unceremoniously dropped from her completely unrelated job by uh, a tech CEO, I guess she worked at, at some sort of tech job after a confrontation in a dog park that was filmed by this sort of provocateur, professional attention getter, Frederick Joseph, who's just like made all, like it, he completely it distorted the situation and made it sound like he's a black man, made it sound like this white woman said, go back to your hood. When in reality, what she was referring to was they were in a dog park in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. He lives in, I believe, Long Island City in Queens. She was saying it eh, like, you know, I think there was some sort of dog skirmish. She's saying, hey, go use your own local dog park. This was not, I mean, it sounded like a racially charged comment. And even if it had been a racially charged comment, as opposed to something where the context sort of was exculpatory and, and made a lot of sense, even if it had been racially charged, go back to your hood really as something that somehow affects whether you should be employed by a tech company in some sort of unrelated was, was support this, role? I remember this story, but I don't remember if the person filming, was he one of the people um, that is sort of like a, a serial provocateur? Yep. yep. Yeah. So, okay. He, got, he, he, he freaked out about a satanic Airbnb. <laughs> right. Several years ago. Right. Oh, I have a funny story about that. It's like, but uh, <laughs> not that particular story, but um, it is absolutely absurd to not realize that when people realize Oh, wow. If I use certain words or certain accusations in certain ways, it's going to get me further on the board. I've told you that yeah. eventually I will write some big, massive piece where it will be illustrated by a picture of the game Shoots and Ladders, right? So in Shoots and Ladders, you have to go all the way around the board to, you know, get whatever to win. But there are shoots where you could fall backwards quite a bit like in Emma Sarley. And there's ladders where you can ascend quite a bit. And the way that the culture has been in the past, I don't know, three, four, five years, whatever it is, probably time immemorial, but now we have the internet, um, is if you make this accusation against someone, you will then shine your own star, right? You will be sort of a figurehead for a movement or just in any case, you will bring someone down, right? Um, well, I, I first of all think this is just horrible, horrible way to behave. I I could never do it. Um, but also, interestingly, you know, a lot of these conversations these days are like, how long is this going to last? How long are we going to put up with? How long are people going to be attracted to bringing down people fast? Well, they will be. Well, they will become the guy in the dog park where I've done it once. I've done it twice. I can keep bringing people down. Of course, it's going to be a little tool in their arsenal. Oh, but huh, where are we right now? What were we talking about again last night? 
we're now having a real war. There's a war in Ukraine. Okay. People are, children are being blown up. And there are people reporting on this and trying to do a really good job. And so the sort of culture war stories that may have dominated the pages of, let's say, the New York Times opinion pages, they got to take a back seat. Now, and someone was saying to me, like, well, you think it's going to like sort of like die down? And I was like, well, yeah, a little. But are people going to want to give up that power? I look at it the exact same way as how I look at pandemic restrictions, where like, which I use just as like a, a metaphor, not as a thing that we should get into because God knows we can rant about that, but where the reasoning, the stated justification for removing them in a lot of you know major blue cities was not, hey, we have to learn how to accept some level of risk in our lives going forward. It was cases are currently low and therefore you can have this as, as a treat. You know, you can remove your masks as, as a reward, recognizing that when there are seasonal spikes and upticks, you will have to put them on again at a later date. So it wasn't from a place of principle. It wasn't from a place of trying to communicate. And public health messaging is all about trying to get people on the same page and communicate what the sort of plan is, um, weighing some of the, the risks, weighing the trade-offs and communicating that to people. But what they, what they said instead was, you know, that, that the removing of the masks is contingent on the case counts, not something that we're doing because we're learning how to sort of accommodate this new normal. Um, and I look at it the exact same way with the culture war stuff, where I think there's some amount of like, we are, <sighs> I just, I think we're, we're going to be, we're, we're, there will be ebbs and flows of it, but it's not that people are coming from this place of principle where they're deciding that the way that we've sort of, you know, ruined the careers um, and the ability to earn a livelihood of people like Emma Sarley or whatever, which like I don't want to overly fixate on her, but she's a good example of somebody who's like not in our industry. And it's not like she expressed a particularly like a, a controversial political opinion. It was a different type of situation, but it was like a very contextless thing that really led to incredibly severe consequences for her. But it's not that people have decided to retreat from this from a place of principle and from a place of coming to a different sort of moral consensus. It's instead that, you know, it's going to be a cyclical thing that's sort of baked into our like cultural DNA for, I think, a long time because people realize that it's just yet another weapon they could use, yet another tool. And a lot of the times it's this like Jonathan Haidt elephant writer type thing where it's like they decided that Nancy Rubbleman was hateable and then they found reasons that justify that. And then now your reporting on Ukraine is invalid because of those reasons that they had come up with to justify this feeling that they have. <laughs> and then the problem is people in our industry can also, like both you and I, I think people, we can be lovable. I think by some people love us very much, but we're, there's also this like hateable thing. And I think the, the problem also is people in our industry who you have to do some amount of embracing the hateability, right? Like, like, yeah, you can go, batshit on Twitter and, and be an asshole to me if you want to. I don't really care. Like I, I like whatever. This is all absurd to me. But if I lean too much into the hateability thing, that also corrupts some of like the soul and some of the oh. sense of like being like staying on the, the right path to be able to actually tell stories well. And we see that from people in our industry. Oh, for sure. I, I It's very sad. I didn't. I mean, I don't want to become bitter in that way. I want to become no. I want to steal myself and be resilient and not let it get to me. But I don't want to become bitter and emboldened in a bad way. It's not the position I I work from. I mean, obviously, like you remember this stuff. Of course you do. But I never, oh, I never get into that. I also, I've, I've said uh, a, a thousand times 
come over. I'll make you cookies. We will literally <laughs> sit in this studio and we will eat the cookies I made and we will talk or just come over. I don't like, I don't, I, I bear at this point, I bear like no ill will. I think it's kind of ridiculous sometimes. I think it's kind of small and sad and I would like everybody to, um, to engage in a way that there's more delight and, yeah. and more information. Um, and we can do that. There's no reason why we can't do that. Like starting today. Yeah. So, um, okay. Liz Wolf. Uh, I thank you for stopping into the studio. Absolutely. Dude. And, um, oh, and talking just about the health restrictions. So tonight we're going to be going to, uh, we're going to see, um, Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. And I just looked at, they send a little thing like, like what you need to know. And I'm expecting like, Oh God. And they're like, no, it's optional. <laughs> I was like, yes. Nice. That's how I just went to a ton of shows for South by Southwest. I never buy like a pass or whatever, but I just sort of know people and chat with people and talk with bouncers and stand in lines, whatever. And it was lovely. It felt like a full return to actually being indoors with people. You don't have to, people weren't overly concerned about masks. No. People were more concerned with drinking their own stars. Hello, 2022. Okay. <laughs> talk to you later. Thanks guys. Later.